Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had an incredible weekend. We are live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feed, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. Well, we just finished a list of 25 players, so how about we do it again? This time we're going to do the top 25 players of the last 25 years starting with 25, 24, 23, and 22 today. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter, underscore JasonLT, so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So I'm not going to lie, this was way harder than the last one (laughs) because you're filtering through... Well, let's just make it simple. You're filtering through 25 times as much data as you're filtering through looking at one particular NBA season. Also, there are a lot more than 25 really good basketball players from the last 25 years. So a lot of really good players had to miss the cut. But honestly, I'm uh, I'm excited to do this for two reasons. One, it'll give you guys a general idea of how I view you know modern NBA history, right? The, this time since basically since Michael Jordan Everything after Michael Jordan hit the shot. So we're not counting 1998, right? It's 1999 to 2023 is 25 seasons. We're basically looking at the post-Jordan era here. And there's a lot of stuff that's happened in that era that I haven't really had a chance to talk about on this show. And so this kind of gives us a means with which to talk about players and historical events that I've never really gotten an opportunity to talk about on the show. And so I'm excited to do that. This list kind of gives us a means by which to do so. Now, there are major compl- uh, there are six major accomplishments that I factored in in order to kind of make this list work. And um, I'm going to read them to you guys here in list of imp- in order of importance. So by far, the most important accomplishment you can make in the NBA, big shock, you guys could probably guess, is to be the best player on a championship team. If you do what Nikola Jokic just, just did and you run through everybody and you hoist the trophy and you're clearly the best player on your team – That's the most valuable thing that you can do on a basketball court in the NBA, in my opinion. That's the number one most heavily weighted accomplishment. 
The second most heavily weighted accomplishment for me was to be the second best player on a championship team. So, for instance, what Kobe Bryant did with the early uh, Shaq Lakers there in 2000, 2001, 2002, that was a, if you produce at a, a star slash superstar level, at least in terms of winning impact within a context of winning an NBA championship with a team as the second best player, I factored that in heavily. Third was best player on a finals team. So, for instance, one of the guys who did not make my list is Tracy McGrady. And one of the guys who did make my list is Jimmy Butler. Tracy McGrady was unquestionably a better uh, regular season player. And as you look through his time in the NBA, he really dominated regular seasons. But he never made it out of the first round of the playoffs. Jimmy Butler has been the best player on a team that made it to the NBA Finals twice and has been one of the best playoff performers of this era. So I gave heavy preferential treatment to guys who have that type of accomplishment on their resume. The fourth most heavily weighted accomplishment for me was MVP Awards 1. So for guys like Joel Embiid, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook, these are examples of guys that have a lot of limitations, but in my opinion, to be able to attack a season from start to finish and have us all leave that season and generally at least not, maybe not necessarily all agree, but at least most of us agree that this person was the best basketball player within that regular season, I think that that uh, matters quite a bit. Also to me, that's like MVP, there is a narrative element to it, but at the end of the day, like there, the, the narrative usually has some sort of grounds to it. And that grounds is usually based in basketball production and they dominate that particular regular season, at least in terms of the headlines. And I think that matters in terms of the history of the NBA. Fifth, I put all NBA selections. So for instance, a guy like Anthony Davis, a guy like Anthony Davis is somebody that you a lot of uh, people are not super high on, but the dude has four first team all NBA selections. So that means four times we left the season thinking that dude's the best player at his position. And I think that that matters a lot in a case like this, especially when you couple it with the playoff success that he has. And last but not least, I, I just listed this as general consensus of opinion among your peers. So for instance, a guy like Dwight Howard. So this is a guy who consistently gets made fun of and we constantly talk about all of his downsides. But the truth is, is during that stretch from 2008 to 2012, Dwight was like consensus considered one of the very best superstars in the league, like in that top tier. There during Kobe's last run in the 2008 to 2010 range, it was like Kobe and LeBron and then it was Dwight Howard. You know, like he was right there, right? And then after the the Kobe era, you get it. It's like it was like right around the time of the decision. It was like LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, maybe Dwayne Wade at three, Dwight Howard at number two, right? Like during that stretch, everybody viewed Dwight Howard as one of the very best players in the league. So I thought that mattered a lot in this particular type of conversation. So. I narrowed it down to 31 players for these 25 spots. There were six guys who missed the cut, so I want to quickly go over them and just list off quickly why they didn't make it. So Carmelo Carmelo Anthony did not make my list. He never made a first-team All-NBA, and he only got out of the first round of the playoffs twice. That was pretty much uh, the breakdown. CP3, this was by far the hardest one for me to leave out, but he just didn't really have a career-defining achievement. Like He was the best point guard in the league for a decent chunk of time, but never was really considered on the same level as the guys at the top of the league, at least the top, top end, like kind of like we were just talking about Dwight Howard being in those kinds of conversations. Chris Paul was never in those kinds of conversations. Uh, even as we look at Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Joel Embiid, during their absolute peaks, they were pretty consistently considered like one of the superstars, right? Um, 
He had a lot of great regular seasons, but he never won an MVP. He had uh, a bunch of good playoff runs, but there was always like some sort of weird story, whether a good playoff run ended with him making some catastrophic mistakes like some of the early Clippers years, or recently, really good playoff runs ending in injury, whether it was the 2018 series against the Warriors where he pulls his hamstring, or the 2021 NBA Finals. I think it was a quad injury in that series that kind of took him down, but he pretty consistently in the tail end of his career has had his good playoff runs cut short by injury. So there just wasn't really enough enough there for me to bump some of the guys ahead of him off that list. Tracy McGrady never made it out of the first round of the playoffs, so he missed my list. Damian Lillard, similar to Chris Paul, checks a lot of boxes but doesn't really have a career-defining achievement. Paul George, just not quite as good as the players above him. He made six All-NBA teams and four All-Defensive teams, but not really a significant playoff or regular season moment. Like His best moment is like probably leading the Clippers to within two wins of the NBA Finals in 2021 without Kawhi Leonard. It was good, like a good moment, but he still lost to a team that had Devin Booker as its best player. So it wasn't like an, an opportunity for, had he won that series, maybe that becomes a different story, right? And then Manu Ginobili was one of the harder ones. He was uh, probably the second best player on the 2005 Spurs, right? And uh, was a critical uh, piece of that Spurs dynasty, but is missing too many of the regular season accomplishments and the consistent playoff dominance to really bump some of the other guys off of the list. So that leaves us um, starting with number 25. And these all four guys today are actually active NBA players, as it turns out, just by the way the list worked out. Uh, you'll notice we'll get to a lot of inactive guys later on in the list. But number 25 for me was Joel Embiid. Now, what I'm going to do for each player is I'm going to list out their awards that they won. I'm going to read their stats from their prime. So I'm going to pull out the chunky years that I consider to be their prime. We'll read out their stats, both in the regular season and the playoffs. We'll go over their claim to fame. So basically the thing that kind of defines them as a basketball player, right? Then we'll look at their archetype, basically talk about what their basketball archetype is within a team. We'll talk about their career-defining achievements, so basically their pin pinnacle moment. And then lastly, we'll go over their biggest what-if. That should give us a lot of opportunity to hit some interesting stuff. So Joel Embiid, his awards. He made first-team All-NBA once. This team was the first year. He has five total All-NBA selections. He has won the last two scoring titles. He has made three all-defense teams, and he was the winner of the 2023 regular season MVP award. I put his prime down from 2018 to 2023, obviously the present. In the regular season in that span, he's averaged 28 points, 12 rebounds, and 4 assists on 61% true shooting. In the playoffs, down a level from there, 24 points, 11 rebounds, and 3, excuse me, three assists on 58% true shooting. Now, in my opinion, Joel Embiid's claim to fame is he's been the best scorer in the NBA for the last three years now. He leads the NBA in points per game over that span, and he's got a blistering 64% true shooting percentage over that span. So in terms of regular season basketball, for the last third of a decade, nobody has been better than Joel Embiid at scoring the basketball. So that is kind of his claim to fame. He's also been one of the best rim protectors in the league over that span. Doesn't really manifest all the time in shot blocks, or block shots, I should say. Uh, but just in general, in rim deterrence and anchoring a good defense, Joel Embiid's been one of the best guys in the league at that span. He's definitively been one of the top two guys at his position in that span, although I think he's consistently been a level below Nikola Jokic. And he's consistently been considered one of the 10 best players in basketball for about 10 years now. That kind of goes to that sixth item that I had in terms of the way you're discussed around your peers. If you're making top 10 lists over the last half decade, Joel Embiid's on it which I think is incredibly impressive, especially when you factor in the amount of talent that's in the league right now. Now, Joel Embiid's archetype, he's basically your throwback two-way center. One of the few guys in the league now that you can – I'd say there's two in the entire league 
between him and Nikola Jokic that you can actually run your offense through because they're skilled enough. But at the same time, Joel Embiid's an old school throwback, you know, big old rim protector, plays with a lot of the similar type of offensive style that you saw back in the 90s, that golden age of centers. That kind of is the type of player that Joel Embiid represents, in my opinion. Good mix of perimeter skill with power, right? Although I'd like to see his power game kind of go up a level. His limitations, somewhat injury-prone, struggles to handle double teams, and struggles to score in the postseason. When he gets to the postseason, for whatever reason, it's usually a combination of injuries, I think, and just general fatigue and, uh, and um, you know, uh, like stuff related to stamina. He just struggles to knock down his jump shot in that stage, doesn't get the same amount of foul calls as he normally gets, and has obviously dealt with some injury issues in those situations. So those are his limitations. His career-defining achievement was winning the MVP this year. Um, really earned it too, which was funny because I think there was this point there two thirds of the way through the season where like a lot of people were saying Jokic, um, Jokic was a deserving candidate. I was kind of leaning towards Giannis at that point, but Embiid was kind of like third on my list at that point. And then there was this whole kind of thing over whether or not it was too narrative based. And there was all these discussions that kind of got toxic, but then legitimately, while Jokic and Giannis kind of both tailed off a little bit to end the season, Embiid just continued kicking everybody's ass the rest of the year. Had a bunch of big wins and head-to-head matchups against important players and like genuinely deserved the MVP award, like a truly earned MVP award. And that's where I shouted out in, his, in our player rankings, I shouted out his competitiveness and just how much I appreciated him wanting that thing, wanting it so bad, and going out on the basketball court and earning it straight up. Um, I think that was his career-defining achievement, and the next step for him, obviously, is translating it to the playoffs. His biggest what-if, in my opinion. Will Joel Embiid ever be able to stay healthy for a full playoff run? Now, we've talked about the different things in terms of his approach and his foul grifting and stuff that struggle in the postseason, but the biggest one, in my opinion, is the health. As soon as he deals with some sort of nagging knee injury, it throws off the energy transfer from his jump shot, from his feet through his hands, and it messes up his muscle memory, and then he can't make a damn jump shot. I went over his jump shooting numbers in our player rankings videos, but like he was consistently a very good jump shooter in the regular season the last few years, and it just hasn't translated to the postseason. And I think injury injuries played the biggest role in that. So the biggest what if for me, for Joel Embiid, is will he ever be able to stay healthy for a full playoff run? We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. 
don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, moving on to number 24, James Harden. Six first-team All-NBA selections, seven total All-NBA selections, back-to-back-to-back scoring titles, 2018, 2019, and 2020. He also won the assist title in 2017 and this last year in Philly. Many of you guys probably aren't aware of that, that James Harden led the league in assists this year. He won the MVP award in 2018. I put his prime down from 2013 to 2020. Uh, there's been a significant drop-off, basically, since he left Houston um, in the 2021 season. Regular season numbers over that span, 30 points, 6 rebounds, 8 assists on 61% true shooting. Playoffs, 28 points, 6 assists, 7 rebounds on 58% true shooting. So, And we're going to talk about this more in a little bit, but um, not a huge drop-off from the regular season to the playoffs in terms of his production. A little bit of one, but not a huge drop-off. But he's known as one of the worst playoff performers of his era. I want to dive into that concept a little bit here in a little bit. Now, what is um, what is James Harden's claim to fame? In my opinion, similar to Joel Embiid, he was the league's best regular season scorer for a while. Basically, during that span there in the late 2010s, there was nobody in the league that was better at scoring in the NBA regular season. I think at one point, like he, uh, the two, he had the MVP season, but he followed that up, averaging 36 points a game for an entire season. Shot 62% true shooting during that span. He kind of Rigged the game, so to speak, in the sense that he just kind of figured out a way to spam a specific action, um, essentially a pick and roll that would either lead to an ISO against switches or shots in the pick and roll, where he could consistently generate a certain amount of points per possession, and Houston just leaned on that and spammed it and spammed it and spammed it, and teams really struggled to handle it in the regular season, which led to him having those ridiculous scoring numbers. He popularized the step-back three. This was something that was a big story on Twitter a few weeks back. And, uh, and like the discussion was basically centered around, you know, uh, uh, whether or not James Harden is underrated in terms of his overall impact on basketball. And I tend to agree here. James Harden is known as a a underperformer when it comes to the playoffs and things along those lines, but he is deeply impactful on the culture of basketball. Like I'll, I'll give you guys an example. James Harden's not my favorite player, but one of the most significant chunks of my game that I've added in the last five years 
is an arsenal of step back threes that I literally added from watching James Harden. You watch young basketball players now, there's a footwork too. It's basically that extra uh, sidestep. And I'm not talking about the really dramatic shuffle step that a lot of people think is a travel. I'm just thinking like that classic, you're in your high hesitation and you just take that one extra step to the side when you before you rise up. That's considered part of your gather, right? That's a completely legal move that almost every star in the league uses now. James Harden popularized that footwork. He may not have invented it, but he popularized it. He made it basically he basically made it a normal shot to take in NBA games by demonstrating that if you work hard enough at it, you can get good enough at it. I also put down here that he invented modern heliocentrism. So, heliocentrism kind of started with LeBron in the early 2010s, but it was never like a bread and butter thing. It was always something that LeBron would go to in specific playoff moments. So like when things would break down or in specific positions in like a fourth quarter situation or a late game situation, LeBron would go heliocentric. It'd be like, rather than having the point guard bring the ball up the floor, let's just let our best player have the ball. He'll bring it up. We'll space the floor and he'll either pick on a matchup or he'll run pick and roll, right? LeBron kind of invented the baseline for that, but he didn't do it very often. James Harden was basically the first guy to just be like, I'm doing this every single possession for an entire regular season. He, he basically took a singular concept and made it the foundation of their entire offense there in Houston for all those years. So that I kind of give him credit for that specifically. Kind of modern spacing as well. What you've seen uh, before the Russell Westbrook trade when he came to Houston, it was four out, one in, classic like Clint Capella setting the screens, rolling hard to the rim. Dwight Howard a little bit in the early age or early era there with James Harden. With when Russell Westbrook came, it became more of a five out kind of thing. But they kind of set up that like we're just gonna have a shooter in the corner, shooter in the corner. We're gonna have a long distance shooter, a guy who's comfortable shooting from like 27, 20, 28 feet, you know, uh, 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 that would sit on the right wing. Um, you know, guys like Eric Gordon, Anderson, the, the guys like that that would sit on the wing. And that guy kind of like pulls that defender even further out because he can shoot from further behind the line. Then James Harden works from the opposite wing. He'll either call for the ball screen and then work off a switch. If he uh, doesn't need the ball screen anymore, he'll put Clint Capella back down in the dunker spot. That whole concept of modern spacing and heliocentrism, in my opinion, was kind of invented by James Harden and the Houston Rockets. His archetype is interesting because he has the body and skill set of an old-fashioned two-guard, like one of the ones we've used to seeing, right? Like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, long arms, you know, a strong, good quickness, athleticism, tons of skill. But none of the old-fashioned play style. Every other two-guard had so much more offensive diversity, and, and, and James Harden kind of became this classic modern, you know, heliocentric shot creator, right? So I think that does lead to his playoff limitations, which we'll get to in a little bit. He also was a bad slash lazy defensive player who took pride when he would get hunted in post-mismatches and had the size to kind of hold up well in those situations, which helped a lot in Houston's switching scheme that they used in 2018, which we're going to talk about right now. So in my opinion, James Harden's career-defining achievement was winning the MVP in 2018. If you remember that Rockets team, they had a guy named uh, Jeff Bezelik. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I always butcher it. Bezdelic, I think. Jeff Bezdelic. They basically brought him in and he uh, designed the rocket switching scheme. Essentially, like, we're going to switch everything. And it was entirely constructed around the idea of how to beat the Golden State Warriors. Essentially, the Golden State Warriors run this crazy motion offense. And they have this flow that just keeps everybody involved in it and no one can guard it, right? But what if we switched everything and we basically turned them into an isolation team and baited them into their worst tendencies? Like we have a better chance of beating the Warriors if KD and Steph are just running ISO every time than if we have them running in the flow of the offense. And it's crazy because it damn near 
worked. They were up three games to two before Chris Paul pulled his hamstring. But this is where I want to talk about a little bit about James Harden's playoff struggles because there's a narrative that kind of came out of that sequence of years that they just couldn't get over the Warriors' hump. And there's a lot of truth to that. That I've frequently said the 2017-2018 Warriors are the most talented team that I've ever seen assembled, right? Um, uh, like I've seen, you know, great playoff performers like LeBron James lose to that team. I've seen, you know, they're, they're not, there's no shame necessarily in losing to that particular team. But if you were there in the moment and you watched those games, what was unfortunate was James Harden didn't really fulfill his end of the bargain in those specific situations. So the defense actually worked. It, it really stagnated Golden State. Caused them a lot of problems. They lost a lot of their flow, and it was a huge part of how they were up three games to two. Those games were stuck in the mud. But over the final six games of the 2018 Western Conference Finals, James Harden was 14 for 69 from three. That's 20%. 14 for 69. Everyone's like, oh, they missed 27 straight threes in game seven. A big part of that was they became so one-dimensional in their offensive approach where it was like they were just taking any three they got a decent look at, even if it was heavily contested. James Harden taking these extremely difficult step-back threes and always falling and, and trying to draw fouls. It became easy to guard. And if you actually go back and watch that series, Golden State is vacating the middle of the floor to chase guys off the three-point line and to play up on James Harden and make him feel uncomfortable and it, it, the one-dimensional nature of their approach specifically made them easy to guard, which is a big part of why James Harden was 14 for 69 from three over the final six games of that series. And then we go down to the 2019 series. Kevin Durant went down in game four. There was a two-game stretch there, game five and game six, where they had an opportunity to win the series without Kevin Durant on the floor. And they literally went in and and uh, and lost in Golden State, and then they went home and they lost at home. And at home, they were within two with two minutes left. Had a chance to extend that series and send it to seven, where they would have had a good chance to win with Kevin Durant unavailable. And James Harden had back-to-back-to-back careless turnovers at the end of the game, just throwing the ball away. That famous one there on the baseline where he just inbounds it and, uh, and basically just throws it to the Warriors. Like... Time and time again, it's not about, with James Harden, the averages. Like I, like I told I'll read you, read you the averages again. James Harden, regular season, 36-8, and 8, 61% true shooting during his prime. Playoffs, 28-6-7 on 58% true shooting. If I told you uh, uh, any other player in the league averaged 28-6-7 on 58% true shooting in an eight-year span in the playoffs, you'd be like, that's awesome. But it was never about the averages with James Harden. It was always about what would happen in pivotal moments at the end of series, which takes you back to that heliocentric concept. Early in series, when teams are not prepared for you yet, or not as prepared as they will be towards the end of the series, the James Harden heliocentric spread pick and roll and ISO thing would work. I would encourage you guys to go look in that 2018 playoff run. Go look at how well he played in the first game of a series. And then look at how he played at the end of the series. And you'll see it in a, a clear drop-off. Many times culminating in a 2-for-11 type of game when the series was on the line in a game 5 or a game 6 or a game 7. The averages are fine. But James Harden had these incredibly ugly games that in large part were fueled by that completely redundant and predictable approach. 
the biggest what if for me in James Harden's career was what if James Harden had played 10 years earlier and wasn't so analytically focused? I blame Daryl Morey in a lot of ways for the way that James Harden's career went. And again, I, I wasn't in those locker rooms, so a lot of this is pontification. But I, the way I think about it, I'm like, I could just see James Harden playing a certain way, and I could see Daryl Morey going like, hey, look, every time you run an ISO, we get 1.2 points per possession. Every time you run a spread pick and roll, we get you know 1.15 points per possession. Why are we doing anything else? Let's just do this every single possession. And the coaching staff getting invested in it, and then they almost it almost became comical in the sense that they just got rid of any sort of traditional basketball movement, motion, and flow, and just leaned it so heavily on the James Harden isolation and, and pick and roll thing. They completely erased any of his off-ball movement. They completely erased his mid-range pull-up jump shot, both things that were big parts of his game when he was in Oklahoma City. And it caused him to reach these incredible statistical highs, but it limited him in the playoffs. And so I wonder if he played a more traditional style, had he been drafted in the early 2000s and, and, and you know came up under a more traditional coach, would he have been a better playoff player because he would have been more diverse in his offensive approach? Would he have been a better defender because he wouldn't have had to devote as many resources to just spamming isolation and pick and roll every single time? I'm curious to see, I mean, even if we get rid of the 10 years earlier modifier and just say, if he didn't have any sort of association with Daryl Morey, what would have happened with James Harden in his career? I'd be really curious to see. Number 23, Russell Westbrook. Two-time first-team All-NBA, nine-time total NBA selections. Two scoring titles, 2015 and 2017. Three assist titles, 2018, 2019, 2021. And he won the MVP award in 2017. His prime, I put down from 2011 to 2020. It was pretty much after he left Houston that things kind of fell off. Regular season, 25-8-9 on 54% true shooting. Playoffs, 25-7-8 on 51% true shooting. His claim to fame, in my opinion, Russell Westbrook, is the most statistically impressive player of his era. Obviously, he was the first player since Oscar Robinson to average a triple-double for an entire regular season. He's actually done that four times now. There was a peak run in Oklahoma City that was insane. His last three seasons in the Thunder jersey, 27, 11, and 10. Just ridiculous statistical production. He also was the best athlete of his era, pound for pound, in my opinion. Um, really like if in th- those of you guys who were old enough to watch Russell Westbrook when he was younger, there, there really wasn't anything like him when he was in his prime athletically. It just, the, 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 the burst that, that he had, and it's crazy cause he still has a little bit of burst and he still looks like one of the best athletes on the floor in any given game. But back then he was on this entire different stratosphere. Again, like there are better athletes in the league, but pound for pound as a six, three frame, there was nobody that moved the way that Russell Westbrook did. You probably all have a, a favorite Russell Westbrook dunk. My favorite, there's one in particular that always sticks out to me. And it's, it, it, if you were to do a top 100 Russell Westbrook's dunk, dunk thing, I'm not sure it would make the top 30, but it, this one, for whatever reason, just kind of resonated with me personally. It was, uh, he was in the Thunder Jersey. It was after KD left, I think. It might have been in the last year with KD. It was somewhere in that 2016 to 2018 range. But he had a mask on because he had broken his nose or had some sort of orbital issue, right? And he got a, a, a rebound and went the length of the floor. 
and just took off from just inside of the free throw line and dunked it with two hands, like rose up with two hands and slammed it down. And as the play was developing, you're like, there's no, you're not even thinking dunk because it doesn't even make sense for a player to attempt dunk in that situation. And he rises up and just throws down this easy two-handed jam. And you're like, oh my God, what did I just watch? There, there really was nothing like Russell Westbrook in his athletic prime. His archetype was your classic hyper-athletic rim pressuring guard. He was consistently one of the league's best rim attackers. He was also excellent at hitting shooters and dunkers as the team would kind of, you know, collapse around him as he was driving to the basket, specifically shooters in the corner and hitting dunkers right under the basket. He was also a pretty good defensive player during the KD era. Still had a lot of the mistakes that he makes now, like missing box outs, losing his man off ball. He still has mistakes like that, but he was just so unbelievably athletic that the positives outweighed the negatives in a lot of ways. He was also a good mid-range pull-up shooter at that phase of his career. He could hit about 40% of them there in that, you know, 2015 to 2017 range. Uh, His biggest limitations, he was not good at finishing at the rim. It's funny because everyone thinks of Russell Westbrook as struggling to finish at the rim in a Lakers jersey. That was always the case. He just got there more often. He was consistently one of the leaders in shot attempts in the restricted area in the NBA, but he always shot around 55%. He just never got to that 60-65% that you're hoping for from a high-level basket attacker that prevents some of the issues that come from missing layups. There's advantages to missing layups, right? Occupying rim protectors, opening up offensive rebound opportunities, but consistently missing layups at that tune? Like, it's one thing for me to say, hey, Kevin Durant, you're shooting 78% at the rim. Dude, take more shots there, you know, because you need to pressure the rim more. It's another thing when you're missing half of your rim attempts And it's just constantly leading to fast break opportunities the other way. That was a consistent issue for Russ during that time. Um, The biggest issue for me with Russ was he just always struggled to play at different pace and different speeds. He just struggled to manage games, which is such an important uh, important part of the point guard position. It's a decision-making position. My favorite example of this to kind of demonstrate it is the 2016 Western Conference Finals against Golden State, the Game 6 Clay game, right? We always think of that game as the Clay Thompson game, but if you actually go back and watch that game, the Thunder would have won it anyway, regardless of any Clay Thompson outburst if it wasn't for Russell Westbrook's decision-making at the end of the game. He had four turnovers in the final two minutes of that game. Four. There were two in particular that I wanted to highlight that kind of demonstrate what I'm talking about. The um, At one point, the uh, uh, the game was tied at 101, I believe, and he runs a two-man game with Kevin Durant. He's being guarded by Clay Thompson, and uh, Kevin Durant's being guarded by Andre Iguodala, who's probably the best perimeter defender in the league at that time. They run the screen, and they get the switch, and uh, um, uh, Kevin Durant kind of goes out to the wing and holds his arm up, wanting the ball against Clay Thompson. Russell Westbrook decides to ISO Andre Iguodala instead. Just objectively a bad decision in that specific situation. Tries to drive by Andre. Andre beats him to the spot, loses his balance a little bit, tries to go into a fadeaway. Andre Iguodala strips him clean, right? And then um, uh, the a uh, couple possessions later, Clay hits that big three on the right wing. They're up 104-101. It's a one-possession game still, though. You've got a chance... They get a stop on a missed Steph Curry layup. And instead of like walking the ball up the floor to run your set and try to get a good shot, it's a three-on-three break. There's no advantage. At one point, it's actually three-on-four as Golden State is sprinting back. And Russ is just pushing the ball up the floor with no advantage. And he ends up getting stripped in traffic by Draymond Green. Just a, just a critical turnover. 
And that's the thing is like we think about those mistakes now. We think about him taking the pull-up jumper against the Blazers in the early season with the Lakers, right, or like bad decisions here or there. But he was doing that kind of stuff when he was in his prime, and it, and it was a significant part of the limitations that the Thunder faced is in big-time playoff moments, Russ was always playing the same speed. And in a big sample size, right, where you have 100 possessions, Russ making mistakes, that version of Russ was so damn good that it outweighed the bad, right? But in any small sample size, let's let's say you've got uh, uh, you're rolling the dice, and and like if it's one or two, three or four, it's a good outcome. But if it's five or six, it's a bad outcome. If I do that a hundred times, I'm going to get a lot more bad outcomes than good or good outcomes than bad outcomes, and that's great for my team. But in a pivotal situation, I'm rolling a dice that has a one out of three chance to make a mistake. And in this particular situation with the season on the line, he rolled mistake four times in a row down the stretch of a game. And so that was the big thing that kind of held him back. Otherwise, he'd be much, much higher on this particular list. Biggest what if of Russell Westbrook's career, in my opinion, and this is one that I don't think is over, but what if he had evolved his game as he aged? Ever since he left Houston in 2020, he has not been the same player. But he put up big numbers in a losing context with the Wizards, and then he really struggled to play in a winning context on the Lakers, right? And a big part of that is as his athleticism has declined and his good part, now the dice is more like one, two, three is good and four, five, six is bad. And on any given possession, it's like, you know, one game it comes out positively for you and the next game it comes out negatively for you. Now it's more important than ever for him to polish up a lot of his specific role player tendencies, right? His off-ball defense, his ability to box out, decision-making. All these things are suddenly much, much more important. And he's really struggled with those. You look at a guy like Jason Kidd, who had this huge prime in the early 2000s with the New Jersey Nets, he gets to um, to Dallas and completely evolves and becomes this role player, spot-up shooter, a guy who's not doing a lot on the ball, who really commits on the defensive end of the floor. Suddenly he becomes an imperative piece of a championship team. I'd like to see Russell Westbrook do that. We saw some glimpses of that with the Clippers this year, and he's on a, a deal now that's – um, a much lower dollar amount that I think will help Russ kind of come to terms with that fact. And I'm interested to see if he has that in his late prime. But to me, that's the biggest what if of his career to this point and will be the biggest what if of the remainder of his career. Will he evolve his game as he ages? All right, last but not least for today, number 22, Jimmy Butler. No first-team All-NBA selections, but five total All-NBA selections. Five All-Defense selections. And um, his prime I put down from 2015 to the present. Regular season, 21.6 rebounds, 5 assists, 59% true shooting. Playoffs, 23-7-5 and five on 57% true shooting. His claim to fame, one of the best playoff performers of this era. How do you even describe Jimmy Butler? You heard me read the stats. Even in the playoffs, 23-7-5, and five, 57% true shooting. Nothing exceptional happening there. But I'll keep it really simple. Jimmy Butler has 23 30-point playoff games. That ranks 16th out of all the players on my list. He has eight 40-point playoff games. That ranks 7th out of all the players on this list. For whatever reason, when he gets to the postseason, in specific single-game samples, typically big, pivotal playoff games that have a chance to swing series, the dude just transforms into an all-time great playoff player. There's There's no other way to describe it. And as a result of that, he has been the undisputed best player on two NBA Finals teams. And this wasn't, you know, LeBron James making eight straight finals with the Cavs where, like, 
yeah, he was the best player in the league, but he probably doesn't make eight straight finals in the West, right? It's not like that. This was a top-heavy East with teams that were favored over him. Bucks teams and Celtics teams. Even the Sixers teams were consistently considered better than Miami, and Miami just beat them and made to the finals twice. He outplayed Giannis in a playoff series twice. That, 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 that's the, uh, it's just, it, it's difficult, right? But, I mean, here's how I'll describe it to my kids. Jimmy was one of those guys who always flew under the radar, but if you ever had to face him in a playoff series, he was absolutely terrifying. There's no other way to put it. I've said this in, in, uh, in the player rankings video, but his approach kind of reminds me of LeBron. It's a, it's a smaller version of the LeBron James playoff approach. It's like two-way dominance fueled by on defense being willing to take just about any assignment on ball or in health. He could pick you apart on the other end of the floor as this big point forward that was going to match up attack and pick on your worst defender and bully his way to the basket and play make out of that. That, that, like that, that's it. Just reminds me of the lesser version of LeBron James, which is exactly why he's been such a good playoff performer in his career. And the biggest part of it is he just always seemed to be the most confident player on the court for whatever reason. And confidence just matters in basketball. You have a muscle memory that you go to, and if you're nervous and you're hesitant, it can affect that. But if you're always so confident that even in big game situations you are calm and your heart rate is under control and your body is relaxed, that's the way you feel when you're practicing. And then that practice translates to the game better. I think Jimmy Butler's insane levels of confidence, I think, fuel him a lot in these playoff situations. His archetype is a a classic undersized point forward, right? He has the athletic tools to be a dominant perimeter defender, but he's not quite big enough to, like, play some of the backline defensive positions that you see a lot of the, uh, the other big forwards in the league play, right? So offensively, he's more of like a three, or a four, excuse me. Offensively, he plays more like a power forward, right? More of a four, power game, back to the basket, rim pressure and playmaking. And then on the defensive end, he's more of a perimeter player, right? He takes a lot of point of attack assignments. He plays passing lanes a lot. He's very forward aggressive, right? So he's kind of a mix of two different archetypes of players. Um, Back to the basket game is that classic old school forward. He's very patient and methodical. He's got a good arsenal of hook shots and, and, and fadeaways over both shoulders. He also has a really good gift for getting players out of position and drawing fouls. And he's a high-level playmaker. He has seven games in the playoffs where he's had at least 10 assists, including three times in the NBA Finals. His limitations, he was an inconsistent jump shooter, and he always seems to wear down. And especially in like the Conference Finals Finals, he's prone to like bad games where he'll have a single-digit night or a game where he just it doesn't even look like he's as engaged as he usually is. But then he'll follow that up and be freaking amazing the next game. So even as I talk about that as a limitation, none of it really makes any sense. It's a very difficult player to uh, to kind of uh, kind of compartmentalize in that sense. Biggest what-if of his career. In my opinion, what if Jimmy Butler had made that pull-up three over Jason Tatum? I think it was over Jason Tatum. I can't remember who it was over. But on the right wing that could have won the Eastern Conference Finals last year. Why do I have that as such a big what-if? I think that was easily their best chance to win a title. That Lakers team was too talented. They weren't going to beat them. It was like LeBron James and Anthony Davis at the peak of their powers, two top five players, you just weren't going to beat them. And they had all this size and athleticism and defense and a good coach and all this stuff, right? This Nuggets team was probably even better than that Lakers team, right? So they just didn't really have a chance. Steph Curry was the best player in the league in 2022, in my opinion. But Andrew Wiggins was the second best player on that team. And they were pretty undersized. And they had some legitimate personnel limitations. 
Now, to be clear, I would have picked the Warriors to win that series, but I would have actually given Jimmy Butler and the Heat a fighting chance to win that series in a way that I did not give them in the Nuggets series or the Lakers series. And so it's interesting to me because I actually think that was their best chance to win the title. Jimmy hits that shot. They go to the finals. Obviously, he'd have to outplay Steph to have any chance to win the series, and I don't think he would have, but he would have had a chance at least. Like, it didn't matter. He could have, he could have played Jokic to a stalemate. They would have lost. The Nuggets were too good. He could have played LeBron to a stalemate. They would have lost. The Lakers were too good. So, like, you, you, you kind of get the point. Like, that, I, as much as I respect the Warriors, that particular team was more of like a, one of those situations where the total was more than the sum of their parts, right? And they just had this one truly great player. I would have given the Heat a decent chance to beat those guys. So the biggest what if of, James, of Jimmy Butler's career, in my opinion, is what if the Heat would have um, won the Eastern Conference Finals in 2022 and Jimmy would have had a chance to play the Warriors in that finals. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. We'll be back tomorrow with 21, 20, 19, and 18. As always, I appreciate you guys, and I will see you then. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.